Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Literary fame, at least relative to the 1950s, came early to Murdoch, particularly after the publication of The Bell in 1958, and she was regularly sought out for interviews worldwide thereafter. These became more frequent after she won the Booker in 1978, and now number around 100 that we have from across her lifetime. 20 years ago, in 2003, Gillian Dooley thought it was high time a selected collection of these were published, and so around 20 were collected in from a tiny corner in the House of Fiction. Conversations with Iris Murdoch, which was published by the University of South Carolina Press, but many more are virtually unknown and languishing in the archive. So today I thought it was high time that on the podcast we should celebrate the 20th anniversary of that book and ask what we can learn not just about her works, but also about the woman behind them. So it'll be no surprise, perhaps, that I'm joined by the editor of that volume, Gillian Dooley herself. Welcome back to the podcast, Gillian. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you with us as always. And Gillian has been a regular contributor. Gillian is Honorary Associate Professor in English Literature at Flinders University, South Australia, and she's published widely on various literary and historical topics, um, work on Jane Austen, on Iris Murdoch, of course, on Jem Curtsy, on V.S. Naipaul, and the maritime explorer Matthew Flinders. Uh, in uh, Her work on Murdoch includes the correspondence between Iris Murdoch and Brian Medlin, Tiny Corner, of course, um, as well as um, the co-editor of Reading Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, and her latest monograph, Listening to Iris Murdoch, Music, Sounds and Silences, which was published uh, in 2022 by Palgrave Macmillan. And her new book, She Played and Sang, Jane Austen and Music, is due out from Manchester University Press in 2024. I'm also joined by Dr Daniel Reid. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Uh, Daniel is currently working in uh, at the University of Kingston, and um, particularly in the archives. Now, uh, Daniel has... Um, got a new monograph coming out entitled Degrees of Evil in Iris Murdoch's Fiction and Philosophy, mm -hmm. and that's coming up with uh, Palgrave Macmillan next year. But Daniel is also working on a project to collect um, the unpublished interviews with Murdoch uh, with an eye to publication at some point in the future. So uh, Daniel is here very much to inform us about what um, is remains unpublished, and I think it's a, a very interesting um, angle for the podcast to take. So Gillian, uh, let's start with you if you if we can. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the development of Tiny Corner and where the idea first came from to put these together? Well, when I was, um, I, I did my PhD uh, as a mature age student in the 90s and um, I was doing it on, on Murdoch and B.S. Naipaul and Doris Lessing and um, because of the nature of the work I was doing, the interviews were very important part of my primary primary material that I was using. Um, there was already a book called Conversations with B.S. Naipaul. There was a book called Conversations with Doris Lessing. <laughs> there wasn't one for Iris Murdoch. Okay. And so I had to scour the world and, you know, get things sent to me on interlibrary loan. There, were, there was very little... There's a few things online in those days, but not so much in 2001, 2002. Um, so it was it was quite a lot of um, very quite indistinct photocopies of um, of newspaper 
articles and things like that that I that I had sent to me from all over the world. So I'd gathered them while I was doing my PhD. So when I in that that um, rather long period between submitting my PhD and actually um, hearing that I'd that I'd passed, mm. which took quite some time. Right. Um, I I busied myself doing, um, you know, just sort of pulling together a, a collection um, that uh, which I thought, and I thought the most important thing actually was to have an index um, to to be able to so you know, so that obviously you could search topics across a range of interviews rather than just reading through the text of each one which is what I'd have had to be doing while I was while I was working so it was very it's quite a practical sort of impulse I suppose to to do that and was it difficult to get copyright permission for these I mean was it difficult to track people down um, or was it really just about contacting the publishers of the original interview oh it was every one every single one of them was a different type of a challenge really the 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 academics on the whole were were quite easy to contact, but you know some of them, of course, some of the interviews had been done, you know, thirty years, twenty, thirty years before, yeah, sure. and um, the, the the people were no longer with us, so I was dealing with literary executors or heirs, um, uh, you know, it did it did was quite a lot of detective work actually to track people down. Um, there are um there was there were quite a lot of I had quite a lot of print press interviews from from papers like the the, the Times mm. um in you know sort of in, in my bundle but they were of course that they would um charge going you know sort of commercial rates substantial for rates yeah a, a very short you know very short interview they would charge hundreds of pounds whereas the the most of the academics were were just very pleased to say oh thank you i'd love you to be to, re, <laughs> to republish my work um and if you sent me a copy of the book that'd be nice too that was the sort of thing sure. um but it was a that was that was actually the major well apart from the just the the, the work of transcribing um indistinct you know um press um photocopies of, of newspapers um that was that was the main challenge sure and and then finding the publisher um south carolina press um an interesting choice yeah. in a way because i think they i don't had they had much um published did they publish much on iris before or were they just um yes they, they were they'd published Cheryl Bove's book, oh, of course, yes. Understanding by Iris Merck. So um, what I did was I, I, I started by seeing if anyone in Australia would be published, would be interesting in publishing, interested in publishing it, um, thinking that, you know, I should publish locally, but that was I was greeted with complete puzzlement then. Uh, why would we, why would an Australian publisher publish this? And then I went to England and no one there could, you know, they all thought it would compete with other other books that they had on Murdoch. Mm. Um, so then I thought, well, I'll, I went through my bibliography of my PhD and sent 
a bulk email to every publisher who had published anything on Iris Murdoch over the years. And they were the first to respond and they responded within 24 hours and very wow. enthusiastically. And um, so they were wonderful, actually. They were just really wonderful. I had a wonderful um, acquisitions editor there who worked with me very beautifully. This would have been the moment when Murdoch was really in the sort of the public eye with the film, with the Conradi biography, with the, mm. um, I, I suppose, a lot of material coming out about her life. This, you, you in a way, it seems surprising to me that British publishers didn't want to, didn't want it, really, because it mm. would have seemed to be something that would have actually done quite well at that point in time. Me too. I, I, I thought, well, it seems strange that they would think it was in competition with the the biography and the and her novels rather than as a something else that people might want to want to add to their collections which I think it's turned out to be yes actually. absolutely mm. I don't know we'll talk a little bit later about the the impact that it's had in the last 20 years but um mm. I think everybody that I ever speak to who, who works on Murdoch or has an interest will, will have a copy on the shelves mm. so mm. obviously you had to make some kind of um some choices, some um, quite uh, clear choices about the interviews that you chose. Um, mm. Perhaps a, a bring Dan in here. Dan, could you tell us a little bit about the kind of the numbers of of interviews that we have, and um, you know the the range that's available at the the Kingston Archives and and perhaps elsewhere. Yeah. So um, I so I, well, I suppose I, I was always so I I started doing my research in Iris Murdoch and was particularly enjoyed reading Gillian's collection. Um, and kind of had been told that there were more interviews in the archive. So the archive does have various interview materials, and I suppose it depends also how we define the word interview. So there's kind of traditional interviews where we have, you know, questioner and, and the interviewee, um, but then we also have other ones which look a bit more like articles and some that look a bit more like conversations um, and even some that kind of morph halfway between Um I think in the in Gillian Dooley's collection, she only has one that looks more like an article. So uh, the rest of them are all more traditional interviews, or I suppose you might call one of them a conversation. The Chevalier one might be more like a conversation. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the archive has kind of one main catalogue of interviews made up of about, I think, six folders. Um, and there are about 100 documents in, in those different folders. Um, some of those are interviews that are published in the Gillian Dooley collection. Um, so they are ones that would be familiar to people who've read that collection, but some of them aren't. Um, and yeah, we, we the, the tricky thing is then that there are also quite a lot of other interviews in different locations. So when I've, so we have about a hundred in the archive in the main interview folders. There are also some other folders that contain hidden interviews that are kind of, partly to do with the kind of the logic of the way kind of archives catalog their materials. It means that sometimes it's difficult to find them. So there are a handful of interviews in other folders in the archive that have been donated by particular people. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are kind of extra ones along the way. Um, and we also have a few recorded materials as well. So some of the interview materials in the archive include things like videos of interviews that were done for um, a, a, a TV program, which actually aren't Murdoch being interviewed, but people who Murdoch knew 
so we have quite a kind of broad range of things so you've got you know people like mary midgley being asked about murdoch or kind of peter conradi talking about murdoch and those get fed into tv programs later on um so in that sense that stuff's quite um different um and then we also have conversations so the most recent iris murder review um that one contains one of the recorded conversations that appears between murdoch and john bailey her husband um and that was transcribed um recently by me so and a couple with some help from others um from a tape so that was um and again there you kind of have your own challenges the challenges are less to do with print and more to do with how quickly they talk and how you make sense of their language when they're kind of conversing. Um, Murdoch liked to edit her interviews quite a lot, so her voice kind of changes between them. Um, I, I think in total, um, if we include look outside the um, the uh, the archive, there's probably something. You know, there could be as many as something like two hundred and fifty interviews. Wow, um, kind of in existence, but. But some of those are kind of duplicates of each other, you know, so some of them have an interesting kind of publication history. The um, the Myers interview, for example, has an interesting publication history. It gets published a few different times and then it's been was published in the Gillian Dooley collection. Then it gets published in his own book later on. And you have that with other pieces as well. So whether you have a, a radio conversation that gets transcribed and then later on it gets turned into an article and then later on the article gets published somewhere else. So there are some which have kind of more complicated histories but yeah there's there are quite a lot um and quite a lot of different ones with slightly different kind of angles sure yes that's the american literary critic jeffrey myers isn't it i think yes 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 yeah um yes and, and particular interview interviewers there are perhaps more than one at different points in her life as well i think from memory so Gillian why why the these particular 20 or so interviews in particular were these the ones that were just <clears throat> known to you or um did you have to make quite a, a, a difficult selection I know you've, you've mentioned approaching um other publications that would have charged a lot of money but um was that that was it a practicality or a necessity for these um these interviews uh, um I actually I can't remember exactly how many I had I probably had about 50 right um maybe dan knows the total in the collection is 26 oh, um, right they get published yeah that's the total um but the but in the but the ones that i had sort of in my in my folders yeah um that i probably had as much again um and and you know my initial thought was well I, i'll try and keep the uh i'll try and um eliminate repetition as much as possible because she did tend to sort of say similar things um and talk about similar themes um sort of as 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 the interviews went along so i tried to sort of keep the keep keep the most interesting ones the most sort of novel novel as it were ones that, that were um, talking about new and different things. Um, for the press ones, I, I edited them lightly to get rid of all the things about, you know, so you were born in Ireland, so you were, you know, so the, the really things which she, she didn't, she answered the same, same, the same questions which she answered the same way every time. So I sort of cut those down a bit. Um, and... Um, 
but really it was it you know so it was partly a matter of win winnowing them out to to try and pick out the ones that I thought were had the most sort of um the most new material in them and also the ones and also a variety across press interviews and literary literary journalists interviewing and literary you know um, serious literary scholars interviewing her or other you know, philosophers or other other academics yes of course to get that kind of that, that range that um mm. it's so useful in in the collection um so coming coming on to think about the collection itself, obviously it spans um, around 35, 40 years, um, these interviews. And rereading it over the last week or so, it, it interests me very much that she's very she's very consistent about particular responses, particularly ones you just mentioned, questions she gets asked time and time again, the kind of the basic mm -hmm. biographical details. But others are, are rather different depending on what um what period in her life she's asking them, whether it's about um you know the, the classic question about the connections between her literature and her philosophy or her literary influences do you think that she is fairly consistent throughout the interviews or is she kind of trying to i don't know not exactly tell the interviewer what they want to hear but to kind of thinking about the audience that would actually be looking at reading or listening to this interview do you think there's anything yeah, in the back of her mind about that well it's it's hard to know but because i suppose when you if you're being interviewed um, you are always thinking a little bit about how how it's how it's going to come across and what impression you're making. Sure. Um, um, so uh, I think that, but I think the the better the more skillful interviewers would get get her to talk more more uh, candidly and more more naturally. Um, that I, I in my introduction I, I do talk a little bit about how the interplay between the interview and, and Murdoch herself affected the way the interview would go. And sometimes there was a little bit of almost, uh, not quite antagonism, but a little bit of sort of uh, distance. You know, she, could, she, she would not really like the way the questions were going particularly and, and might just resist that a bit or, um, or else she would feel very um obviously very sympathetic sympathetic with the with the with the interviewer and and you know quite often she would say have you written a novel you know and, <laughs> um and she would she would ask them about their she would sort of turn turn the questions back to the to the interviewer in a few in a few cases which is um you know which is which is rather disarming really isn't it Sure. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I was thinking of one particular conversation in the uh, in the collection where she's rather short, and I think you, with the, the shorter mm. the answer, the more you, you can feel her getting a little bit um, a little bit fed up with that with a particular line of questioning or a little bit grumpy. Mm. And I think that happens mm. more in the later interviews when she's perhaps um, has so much uh, so many calls on her time and so many people yes. want to inter yeah. wanting to interview her. Uh, she's she's quite combative with Harold Hobson though back in 1962 you know she's sure. she's you know she's quite a feminist there she's saying you know the, he was saying oh well, you know what does she what does he say that men are better writers than women and and um, it, it it is quite and, misogynistic yeah looking, looking and at and, and she yeah. she she comes back right back at him and says you know 
you know, you don't allow men in this, women in this club, do you? <laughs> so, Good heavens, it's, it's, no, he says. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, it's quite quite amusing. Um, you know, she's kind of feisty in that one in a way which she's rarely, you rarely get later. Yes, absolutely. I think that 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 personality comes over, and I think that it it does actually in the uh, in the one that's just been published in the uh, in the most recent Iris Murdoch review that mm. Dan very kindly transcribed. When she's in conversation with John Bailey, as she often was at various um, events around the world, you get a, a, a sense of their relationship and their kind of their, mm. their kind of in, intellectual compatibility, which mm. which is fascinating. But as is, I think what you just mentioned about her responses to the question about being a feminist or a feminist writer. Um, again, that's um, something that changes and develops depending on on who's asking. Dan, are you are you seeing consistency in in her responses um, within these? Not just the the collection, but also obviously, I, I know that you've read um, lots of the uh, uh, un unpublished ones in the archive. Are, are there is there a consistency, or is she kind of angling herself towards the uh, the audience or the interviewer? Um. So, I mean, so some of them, are, uh, it's a bit of time since I've read them, but from memory, yes, I know that when I was thinking initially of trying to kind of start to think about a, a kind of another kind of publication project that could come out of the interviews in the archive, um, the, the biggest kind of challenge was thinking about how much editing you would need to do. You know, so some of the, are you a philosophical novelist type questions would mm. become very formulaic quite quickly, especially if you read all of the interviews in kind of a big run. Um, I think the, the Gillian Dooley's collection has a kind of really interest, has been able to capture quite different responses. Um, and obviously that shows kind of her skill at being able to find the right interviews that, that give us different kind of slightly different angles sometimes. But yes, you, you do get quite a lot of repetition of, and sometimes quite straightforward answers that then kind of don't lead anywhere, which are more kind of, you know, the kind of, well, I'm not a philosophical novelist and that kind of, the question ends up kind of ending. So I think some, I don't know, I, I kind of get the sense that perhaps there were just some times when she was a bit less patient, perhaps with an interviewer, um, for reasons that might have not been to do with the interviewer, um, but, and may have been more to do with her time where she just becomes slightly more um, kind of wanting to to get through it and kind of think, no, I've done that before, you know. Um, but yes, there are there are some things that are um, and the same with yeah the same with her bio biographical information that becomes quite repetitive as well. But sure. you occasionally do get differences. Um, she's particularly in it's particularly interesting when she has interviews with other writers. Those tend to be the ones that mm -hmm. get quite interesting because she'll talk mm -hmm. about the ways of writing and and uh, you know of writing a novel or the way she approaches writing, and that can tend to bring out if not kind of very different responses, slightly different angles. So you're kind of, you know, turning the kaleidoscope slightly and getting a slightly different picture. Um, but yeah, I, I think in general, um, yeah, I agree. She does kind of have similar responses over over time and, and the interviews in the archive do tend to show that. There are some differences here and there, but mostly. And her change in politics is quite marked from you know sort of moving from left to right across her lifetime that that's you can sort of track that through the interviews I think um that I mean it, it wasn't sort of a big part of her life really it was it was a and it's not something that sort of everybody wanted her to talk about but it did it, it you know it is something that you can notice that she you know she actually says she voted for Thatcher 
yeah and that thatcher had done some good things you know in the 80s and, um, and, and uh, assessing her so, life in the round now to think mm, about that kind of shift from where she is in the in the in the late 30s early 40s you know late 30s mm, early 40s through to the yes. 80s it's well I, mm. it is 50 years and you'd imagine mm. it would change but it's still an enormous shift to the right mm. yes yes and yeah. one that isn't really reflected, I don't think, in either her philosophical nonfiction work or indeed in her fiction. You don't really get a sense that she is now mm. a conservative writer in, in that kind of mode, do you? I don't think so. Um, I mean, she she's not a political writer. I mean, that's I think that's the, that's the thing, that, that she's not... Politics is... Uh, is a subject rather than a than a lens. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, she will talk about other people being political, but she won't sort of impose her own views um, as a frame on the novel. Sure. And I wonder whether, obviously, we'll, we'll come, perhaps talk a little bit about her what she says about her craft in a minute, and maybe you know, um, got a couple of favourite um, extracts to share, perhaps um, that we could um, have have a think about. But I'd, I'd like to think a little bit about um, her kind of development as a as a philosopher. I, I wonder whether um, in the interviews, I know most of the interviews are more focused on the on the fiction. But whether we can see her developing her philosophical thought in interview or whether that's kind of left to one side and it's more about the accessibility. Obviously, some uh, there are some interviews in Gillian Dooley's collection that, that touch more on philosophy than others. Um, and sometimes that's, in a sense, kind of discussing philosophers or discussing some of her philosophical writings. Um, so I'm thinking like the Chevalier interview or the Bigsby interview, there's slightly more kind of, um, there seems to be slightly more philosophy in those ones. Um, but I, I think some of the ones, uh, th there are interviews where she does do more of the kind of developmental thinking. Um, I mean, perhaps the Brian McGee interview, which is in Existentialist and Mystics, we might think of oh. as being in that vein. Um, but there are also quite a lot of the of others that are unpublished so quite a lot of the ones in the archive that then are different or in fact even ones that aren't in the archive but that we know are in existence perhaps somewhere um part of the challenge is we know that we we have a, a so to kind of go back slightly um one of the other books that's quite useful for interviews um not because it provides them but because it lists where they come from is mm. john fletcher and cheryl bogues mm, um and bibliography and they list about 175 interviews um and i think that some of those are ones that they had copies of so hopefully in time we'll be able to kind of share resources um but you know you you have kind of quite a lot of things that occur in the early period where murdoch's having conversations with other philosophers so people like stuart hampshire david piers um uh, things like that so one of again one of those was published not in this year's IMR but in last year's IMR so philosophy and beliefs was one of the conversations with um, Stuart Hampshire Patrick Gardner and David Pears, or Pears. Um, and that was uh, so we can see Murdoch kind of engaging with philosophical ideas there and I think that is more developmental um, mm. rather than kind of reflective on uh, reflecting on her craft but you have other ones as well that are similar to that. So um, there's another piece that was done um, with David Pears called The Idea of Freedom, 
Um, and that was a TV program, which you can actually, well, for a long time, you could access on YouTube, um, which is a very interesting conversation um, and quite an interesting, it's been put together in an interesting way. It starts off with um, David having a conversation with a student and then they're talking about Murdoch and then he goes into a conversation with Murdoch herself, um, which is quite an interesting one. So that that kind of is exists out there. Um, there's also others that are very early. So there's a 1959 conversation that occurred on radio between Stuart Hampshire and Charles something. I'm not sure of the name um, <laughs> uh, because I haven't got the kind of complete details called The Habit of Violence, which sounds quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. And presumably that would have been more philosophical. Um, and then kind of fast forwarding quite a bit later, she also has a conversation with um, Hidu Krishnamurti. The yes. Indian mystic in, in 1984, I think she has the conversation with him. And that's definitely um, one where she's kind of engaging with philosophy more in, in more depth and kind of they're trying to find common language and ideas between mm. each other. Again, that's another one that for a long time was on YouTube. I think it still is. Um, mm. Yeah. But, and, and then you do get more traditional interviews that are focused on the philosophy. So there's one in 1976 in Holland called The Philosophy of Iris Murdoch. So it's a, an interview that tries to reflect more on her philosophy. Um, so, so the, and, and yeah, so, so they, they do exist, but there's fewer of them. Sure. And I guess for you, Gillian, it was trying to um, balance these out a little bit not mm. in, in your collection. Yes. Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the Krishnamurti one is is really fascinating, isn't it? And and um, I have it. I have a video of it actually. I, I, it was available to buy on video, so I have it up on my little video shop up there. Um, and that what what what's interesting about that is that she's actually the interviewer in that case. She is asking Krishnamurti. She is trying to understand Krishnamurti's philosophy, and 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 whole sort of approach to to well life the universe and everything really I mean it's just it's just a um it's it's a fascinating way to see, to see a you know highly intelligent woman in the western um in the western tradition trying to um to 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 get to the bottom of this this different way of, of looking at the world um, and, and it's just fascinating, and you know, I love it when she says, "I think we, I think we should go and have lunch." Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, and in fact, the video <laughs> then, then they come back later. <laughs> yeah, the video is particularly interesting as well because you can kind of see her kind of hands on the head, you know, really, yes. really trying to think. <laughs> because sometimes they have quite amusing thing kind of in exchanges where there's kind of a word that's that they're using indifferently and and Krishnamurti will kind of go well no you know and he's he's not willing to accept Murdoch's word and so Murdoch has to kind of you know um you know give way to his his kind of way of seeing things without mm -hmm. trying and and then still try and find the picture the same in the same mm -hmm. yeah so definitely um the other thing as well that's worth kind of thinking about as well is obviously that there are the, the recently transcribed interview conversation with John Bailey and Iris Murdoch is obviously slightly more philosophical as well. So you see her reflecting on on kind of Heidegger and Derrida in that. Um, and she's definitely thinking more in kind of philosophical ways. Um, I, I think that that happens more towards the end of her life. There seem to be more interviews based on her philosophy towards the end of her life. Mm. Uh, 
or I say towards the end of her life, towards the end of her career. So in the kind of 80s, you know, so the late 70s, they seem to start to creep up a bit more. Um, so, I mean, there's another interview, for example, with A.S. Byatt, where she starts to think a bit more about, she talks about structuralism and Derrida. Um, and, and that appears a bit less in the Gillian Dooley collection. But, um, but I th again, I think that's that we get more of the kind of novelist side, perhaps, um, in the in the collection. Um, and that kind of helps as well insofar as we have lots of the of Murdoch saying, I'm not a philosophical novelist. So it's, you know, you kind of, it might then destabilize her attempt to say, no, I'm not a philosophical novelist. If you then start to have more interviews where she's kind of talking philosophy. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, this is, of course, partly my my personal bias towards the literary side might might come through too as well. It might, you know, it might, might I'd. I very much doubt if my selection was totally, um, completely objective. <laughs> but I don't think it's, I don't think that's a problem. I think it, it it's just, it, it's the first collection of, of hope and hopefully there'll be another. It's, mm, um, yeah. th there's always going to be that kind of um, personal interest. Just going back to the, the Krishnamurti interview, there's a, um, there's at least one letter, if not two, in Living on Paper, where she reflects on that to one of her friends and and thinks that actually they were talking a completely different language and she doesn't know quite what she got out of that and, and what he got out of it, which is uh, an interesting follow-up, um, mm. just to, to let people know that that's there if they want to then mm. see what Murdoch reflected on afterwards. Uh, thank you both. It, again, look, looking back at the, the interviews in the, uh, in, in the Tiny Corner collection, um and again perhaps it's just me but there there are times that i feel that now that we have the biographies and the letters and and so much else and the journals of course there are times in the interviews where she does at least misdirect interviewers or maybe give them what they want to hear um and we can see that now with all the other as i said all the other materials that we have do you think that, you know, looking back at these interviews now, that she's doing it with one eye to her public image or to um, how she wants her books to be received? Or maybe that, as, as we've mentioned briefly, that kind of that definite separation that she wants to see between the philosophy and the literature that may be little, a little bit closer than she might herself think? I'm not sure um, how much she does that do, do you think she I'm not sure I'm not sure that she does it deliberately but I mean sometimes it, there's a matter of sort of inattention where she's she, he's she's asked a question and she kind of she's thinking about the question before and she doesn't quite answer it and comes back um I suppose I mean she's often she, she would often say that she doesn't want to be thought of as a or she she wants people to enjoy her novels Sure. And I and I think that's a, a genuine wish. I mean, why why wouldn't you? You know, she, she put her life into into writing, writing her her novels, and and um, she 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 hoped that people would enjoy them, and whether they whether they sort of understood the theological myth behind the a fairly honourable defeat, or um, whether they could understand the 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 um the allusions to uh, Greek myth in the Black Prince and things like that you know that that this was she 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 would say things like that that's all play that's just my that's just me having fun really um that's it's and it doesn't matter if the 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 reader doesn't doesn't see doesn't understand those things as long as they're enjoying them 
What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I think that there is, um, I think sometimes it is you kind of sense uh, she, you know, she's not always perhaps 100% in the moment when she's answering the question. And so that can kind of lead to kind of slower things. The philosophy one, I, the kind of, are you a philosophical, philosophical novelist question is, is, is interesting, I think, because I think it might be that part of her kind of resistance to the question is that she's, I think it's that she doesn't like the assumptions that it comes with. She she talks about this kind of more clearly um, in one of the later interviews. Um, so I know the page number, but I don't know the person who it's with. Um, but she says, um, you know, uh, the artist should follow their instinct to not try and be a teacher in their art. And for her, a good novelist like Sartre is damaged by a desire to put a, put across a philosophical creed. And so, it's you know, she, what she doesn't want is this idea of, people thinking of oh a philosophical novelist means you know the author is speaking their philosophy through their novel and that was something that she obviously was quite um she she was definitely against the idea of but then of course there is lots of um philosophy that appears in the novel and yeah I think that's where she says well that's part of my aspect of play you know and it's also part of my aspect of knowledge I think she says in a couple of different interviews something like you know well, if I knew about fishing, I would write about fishing, but I know about mm. philosophy, so I write mm. about philosophy or something like that. She uses that kind of an sailing example. Sailing ships, isn't it? Sailing ships, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Coal mining. Yeah. So, you know, she she's just saying, you know, I'm writing about the thing I know. You know, I you know, mm. I, if, I, if I had a different thing to write about, I'd write about something different. Do you think that when she's giving interviews, that she is aware of herself as a public figure? that um, particularly toward in the later interviews that she's um, maybe holding back a little, um, perhaps. Not exactly telling the interviewer what they want to hear, but maybe mm -hmm. um, being a little bit um, general, or, or is it just because she's, she's given so many interviews that she has kind of set responses to the questions that she knows are gonna come up? I think that would be the case. I think that 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 would definitely be the case that she she has um, set, answered these questions so many times, and she mm. just sort of has has the answers that she always gives. But um, I think what what I what I felt with these interviewers was that it was more to do with not so much to do with where she was in her career, but the 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 um, relationship that she established with this with the person with the yeah. interviewer um and you know the the sympathy or not that she had with the interviewer um and even you know with some of the shorter interviews even were the press interviews were quite um you could feel that that there was sympathy there but in other ones um you know you could feel that there was a bit of friction um and and, and um, you know who who knows in really which is going to elicit more honest answers really. But I suppose you think that the sympathetic ones might get her to to drop her guard a bit and and uh, say and to be to perhaps be more 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 um, candid. Sure. Yes. Yeah, I think you definitely get a sense that when she has a bit more kind of knowledge or a kind of connection that um, even if it's a kind of, you know, oh, we happen to have gone to Oxford together or something like that, um, that, that they do end up with a slightly kind of better rapport. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I think it's, is it the, the Heusel interview in this book? There are, there's some resistance there. She obviously doesn't like some of the questioning and that leads to some almost slightly kind of terse responses. Um, and yet, and they can be kind of talking about things like kind of, you know, um, uh, does she talk about the carnivalesque or something like that? And it's kind of Murdoch saying, no, that's not there. Um, mm. uh, but then in other places, it seems quite clear that it is there in the novel. Um, or or she'll talk about kind of influences and say, no, that's not, you know, there is hmm. there is no, I think, is, is it in that interview that she then says there's no Dostoevsky there? But then in a later interview, in one that she did in New York, which isn't published in the Gillian Dooley collection, hmm. but is available hmm. online, she'll say, oh, of course, yeah, I was reading lots of Dostoevsky there. And, and you know, this person comes in, you know, so... <laughs> She can, and that can kind of be to do with, or there's the same thing happens with Henry James. I think she kind of says, no, um, there's no Henry James, you know, reference. Mm. But then in another interview, she'll say, um, oh, no, yeah, I was reading this at the time. The name's not quite, you know, I've not borrowed the character, but yes, the name is similar. And so mm. there seems to be an awareness of, you know, some of those connections that exist there. And and that that tends to come out when she feels a little bit more, maybe just a bit more at ease with the interviewer. Yes. Um, and that comes yeah. either with connection or with a, perhaps with the feeling that they don't have an ulterior motive. You know, maybe it's that, you know, with someone like Hoysel, who she knows is a, a, a literary critic, she's nervous about mm. being kind of, you know, the novels being read with a particular aim in mind. And that's what mm. she, like, yes. she doesn't want them to be closed. Yes. And she said, um, I'm just a novelist and critics are critics. If people <laughs> want to explain something by saying it is like something else, then okay. Anyway, we can't stop them, so we, so they will. <laughs> so she's just a novelist. <laughs> yeah. I think the problem with that that conversational piece that uh, I think very much mm. worth including, because you see the kind of, um, there's a little bit, there is quite a bit of friction in, in, in that conversation, that Horsell has come with a kind of a, a Bakhtinian framework that she wants to explore with Murdoch in regards to the philosopher's mm. pupil, and Murdoch is very resistant to that. And yet, there are elements of the carnivalesque, and there are very strong Dostoevskian elements within philosopher's pupil. But I, that's something that I was, it, I, I'm interested in, that you know, obviously we can read it now and, and see it in there, but I wonder whether... Murdoch's resistant to it because she wants it to she wants her work to be more accessible than just you know a, a kind of reflection on these elements that that are in there yeah I think perhaps it is I mean and I suppose that would be the kind of that the kind of you know wanting to sell it as you know wanting for the novels to be you know read for being a good yarn I think is another phrase yes yeah, yeah. I want it to be a good yarn um and, and that is kind of her that's her priority so I think maybe Maybe that's why she doesn't lean into these questions quite so much in some um, interviews, because she's nervous that if they come to publication, if they get published and entered into the world, then suddenly someone's going to have an answer and they'll always go to it. Um, I mean, that might also be part of the reason why it's in more of the kind of conversation style pieces. So the Chevalier piece or perhaps the types of conversations that occurred around the um john bailey and iris murdoch um conversation we know for example that she talks about the black prince in one of the seminars outside of that conversation it doesn't appear in the iris murder review but she know that she ends up co confirming things to do with you know did bradley kill you know um arnold baffin yeah. and so i think in mm. those places where she knows that there's not going to be a kind of interviewing kind of a standard interviewing structure She's happier mm. to kind of go, well, of course, this. 
um <laughs> you know this is the answer yeah. um but and i think that's just because she wants to kind of maintain the interest for the readers you know she wants readers to read it just for it being a good yarn but also for them to have space to move around and and kind of find answers for themselves and we've talked a little bit about um influences we've mentioned james and um of course austin and others and she regularly mentions the same names in interviews doesn't she and then Gillian, i'm sure you, you saw this when you're put, putting the collection together um but of course there are other names that get mentioned um at different periods in her life and i wonder whether when you're when you were putting the collection together or dan this can also perhaps you can reflect on it too that that the interviews do reflect the kind of the time period and the influences upon the novel at the time and i wonder whether that is reflect that's reflected in the fictional works that she's re either reading that we know of or whether you, we can see them in in particular novels i think the answer is a kind of straightforward yes um you know it does seem like the that when she's kind of asked this question of who is the influence she has some that are kind of stock answers or, or somewhere she we know that she has a kind of deep kind of feeling of wanting to be influenced by them. So someone like Shakespeare, she'll come back to Shakespeare a lot yeah. and say, you know, I'd like to be like Shakespeare. I would like to be able to do what he can do. Um, so, you know, he's someone who who kind of remains continuous throughout the period, although it might be interesting to think actually now, especially now that we have the journals and the letters, we know that she did reading of Shakespeare in the 60s. So maybe that does appear a bit more in the novel in the interviews in the 60s than it does appear later on than later on in the interviews um but you yeah i do think there is a sense that the novel that she's novels that she's reading at the time that then have an influence on others do end up kind of cropping up a bit more in the interviews so things like henry james um you know crop up when we know that there's the, uh, what is it uh, the message to the planet has some kind of james-esque kind of references in it and she's obviously read henry james ahead of it um, and similar things, I suspect, will have been happening with Dostoevsky with something like The Philosopher's Pupil. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, perhaps Gillian has a better picture of it for her own collection. <laughs> no, because of course, when I was doing my work, there weren't, there was no access to the letters. There was very little access to the diaries or anything like that. Um, so I... I I was working pretty much, you know, this is way before Living on Paper was published. Yeah, of course. Um, the the biography, you know, Peter Conradi's biography was published just just as I was sort of publishing this. So I think there's a footnote in here where where I mention that um, that's all I was allowed to put in. So, um, you know, so really the, the primary sources that we had available at the time were not... Uh, were not there when I was doing this this interview this this uh, collection mm, mm, yeah and I suppose yes so in hindsight it is easier to see some of those kind of patterns now that we have so mm. particularly I mean Peter Conradi's biography does a very good job of giving you a bit more kind of you know ideas and obviously he's also pulling from the journals at the same time but uh, perhaps the letters are where we've really got a sense now of of the influence and also um, perhaps as more of the um, you know, uh, working documents, either ones held in Iowa or the kind of few that we have held in the archive are being read. You know, we, we kind of start to see, oh, well, these are the people that she was reading or intended as influences on, say, a novel like Jackson's Dilemma or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an interesting so, one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so we, we know that she's mentioning Kafka yeah. a lot in the kind of early drafts. So she's obviously reading Kafka, um, you know, when she's uh, in, in it. She's obviously reading Kafka in the lead up to writing Jackson's Dilemma. Yes, and I think that's what's great about this interview collection, uh, Tiny Corner, is that it is one of those um, jigsaw pieces that fits into the whole kind of uh, the whole image of how we actually uh, mm. see Murdoch working and the, that kind of the look, looking at those kind of the, the kind of the um, the machinery of of, of production, the, the, the kind, her kind of um, her active thought, and that's something that interests me very much about how um, these kind of influences wax and wane throughout her career. And um, Gillian, obviously, um, one of our recent podcasts, we thought about Austin and Elliot and Wolf. Um, but obviously, there are plenty of other voices to explore, I think. Mm. Uh, for me, when I first read this collection, which very handily came out just to, just um, um, I, I just about started a PhD uh, at this point. Um, it was it was so useful to be able to not just take this collection but take it away and, and think about it in in relationship to Murdoch's published work and um and the, the very at that point the, the beginnings of the uh, the archive as well not not long afterwards so it was really a, a major uh, major uh book for me um which is what's been you know so vital I think for um, me over the last 20 years as well so I, I, as we come towards the end of the podcast, um, I'd like to reflect a little bit on how important uh, Tiny Corner has been um, for Iris Murdoch criticism. And I think, Gillian, it, would it be fair to say that this was the work that made you known to the Murdoch community as it was um, 20 years ago? Oh, definitely, I think. Um, I, I, I don't think I was anybody before <laughs> before this. Um, and... Um, and uh, it, yes, it definitely did um, make make a huge difference. And 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 in my in my career, in general, I think. And I I one of the things that I did in my professional life as a librarian was to be to help people with publishing publishing strategies. You know, help students, university students, and and. Um, early career people and I would always use this as an example of a non-traditional you know it's not a monograph it doesn't tick the boxes for you know for for research points in at least in the Australian system and probably in everyone else's system you know you need to have a monograph that that you alone have written but to do a collection like this didn't get me anywhere on the on the sort of research scale of things but it, it did got me everywhere in in, in the, the sort of reputation of being known among other scholars in in the in the murder iris murdoch world anyway so uh, you know that that um it, it was very much worth doing even though it was not a not improved of in that 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 sort of um, formal sense sure and i think i remember you saying once that um when you you came over to your first uh, Iris Murdoch conference at Kingston that people knew who you were through this book. Yes, yes, yeah, that's which, right. Which must have been a, which must have been a lovely, was, must have been a lovely delightful. Thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, to know that people are reading your work. Um, Dan, some reflections on Tiny Corner from you, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose it's, it's interesting as well. I suppose we all kind of come from the, the three of us come from slightly different places. So, I mean, I started my PhD in what 2014 but I'd been kind of um learning uh, I'd been 
engaging with Murdoch as in, in kind of from time 2009 in my university studies um, at Kingston. So I kind of was always kind of this book has kind of always been there, you know, so to speak for me. Um, and it's it, I suppose it was one of the things as well that I that I really kind of that helped kind of build my interest in Murdoch was these interviews. And then also they helped to kind of build a, a deeper interest in the archive as well. So I I mean, in my third year of university for a final project, I ended up kind of creating a fake um, little collection, you know, kind of supplementary interview collection, because this is definitely mm -hmm. something that kind of it kind of got me kind of interested and kind of fired up. And it's, it's I think in particular, you know, it's obviously there are kind of really valuable kind of scholarly aspects to the to the interviews insofar as we learn things about influences or we kind of get to hear Murdoch responding directly to questions like, are you a philosophical novelist? And we hear that in all its different kind of forms. But the other thing as well, that's just, it, it's really nice to hear Murdoch's voice, you know, to read mm. Murdoch's voice. Mm. Um, and, and of course, we are reading her voice in a slightly kind of edited form. She does like mm. to kind of work her her, her interviews uh, quite heavily. Um, but that again, it's it's just a different way to hear her. So it's, it's just another one of these voices that we can kind of add, add to our kind of repertoire that we can kind of you know fall back on as as um, academics and scholars reading her work you know um, and obviously the letters have now added quite a bit more to that and and the mm -hmm. journals no doubt will later on but but these remain really important um, because they're also authorized you know they're, they're kind of this is mm -hmm. how they wanted to appear publicly so um, that yeah I think it's it's kind of hard to underestimate um, to, or hard to overestimate how valuable it has been and continues mm -hmm. to be. Some of the early reviewers uh, were very scathing because they said that there's absolutely no no uh, value in in interviews, um, and I think it's that was to do with the you know the um, uh, the the idea about the death of the author and you know not taking the author's intentions into any account and all that sort of thing that was very much around in the late 90s and and early 2000s and you should never take any notice of what the author says um and so that I was kind of going against that tide as well with this and her, and thankfully the tide has turned <laughs> <laughs> yes yes and, yeah. and also we have more of Murdoch speaking about that in other places so I, you sure. know, I suppose that's you know um we she does talk about that occasionally in this collection, but there are also other interviews where she starts to, you know. So the conversation that's been published in the IMR recently is a good example of that, where you know she's kind of joking about the uh, this kind of language that talks about text and things like that. You know, it's, mm. you can kind of hear her her disdain <laughs> um, in <laughs> yes. that with that kind of um, way of thinking um, that with that style of kind of criticism. Yeah, of course. Mm. So, I mean, of course, you can go too far the other way, but um, but to, to completely ignore the author's intention seems to me a little bit silly. Absolutely. So, do we hope for another collection at some point, Dan? Do you think? Is that there's there's clearly enough material out there, and and if so, what would yeah, ideally you'd like to see? I know that you've got a um, a big spreadsheet of all these interviews and um, have, have done quite a lot of work on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that um, hopefully it'll be one of the kind of next projects that I can start working on. There's a few in the pipeline, but with with time running out slowly. Um, so yeah, I need to get the monograph out of the way. But this is one of the things I would like to prioritise next. Um, but particularly because the, there are a handful of, of things where we know that we can start to fill in 
we can start to fill in gaps now. So, you know, novels that don't get discussed in interviews um, in the in this in Gillian Dooley's collection, we have some novels where she does discuss them, some interviews where she does discuss those novels more or the philosophy as well. But the, I think the real challenge when it comes to doing it itself will be things like kind of repetition and how you cope with that. So, sure. um, yeah. And also thinking about how um, its relationship will be to Gillian Dooley's collection. So, you know, do you kind of allow it to follow the same format where it's kind of a straightforward introduction, interview, 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 or, you know, the, the, there might be a kind of, there might be a few different ways to approach the project. You know, it could be that you draw more on, um, you know, kind of a kind of um, decade by decade, you know, um, kind of uh, summing up of, of opinions or changes and things mm. like that. There, there's a few different approaches that could be done to it. Um, especially as we've had more and more um, information and kind of resources come into the archive. So, mm. yes, it's definitely it, it's definitely an idea bubbling in the background. Um, hopefully it can come together. Uh, and, in yeah, the, in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'd be lovely if it did, I think, because mm. as good as this is, what you've been saying, and I'm sure people listening, it's tantalising to think there's so much else out there. Mm, mm. and there's so there, there may well be more stuff that we don't know about as well because you know the british library's you know um audio what, what's the name of it um the british library's store of of recorded materials which include things like radio and stuff like that um some of those are catalogued but some of those aren't catalogued very well mm. um so you know there may well be more things that, mm. that we are mm. actually or in the bbc are, archives yeah Perhaps. the bbc archives as well i mean you notice this occasionally with the british library you if you kind of do quite a bit of forensic searching you can find occasionally that there are interviews with unnamed speakers on them and you can see that you can find out that they're Murdoch based on kind of relationships or kind of the other people named in the interview. So yeah, there's kind of quite a lot of exciting stuff that could occur and come out. There, there are some from her 1967 trip to Australia, um, which have not yet been um, transcribed. Yes, um, yes. No doubt there must be many in the States as well, in the United States and elsewhere. Yes, um, I've, I've wondered before as well if there are kind of things lodged with kind of different authors as well, or kind of, um, you know, if, if interviews were done at Chateau and Windows, for example, you know, did Chateau hold copies of things? So I suspect over time there may be more, you know, there, there's, mm -hmm. and, you know, thinking of um, A.S. Byatt, who's passed away recently, you know, there's there's lots of interviews with her. <laughs> um, so, you know, and lots of those are really mm -hmm. interesting as well. And And there you then get to get to see a different thing as well. You get to see a friendship building through these interviews. Yeah. Um, which is also quite interesting so there's there's yeah there's lots that could be lots that could be shared goodness yeah plenty of different <laughs> angles that even uh, both of you just talking now i hadn't even thought of um but yes there's 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 so much richness out there but uh it all began with this fantastic collection um so from a tiny corner in the house of fiction is out has been out 20 years but if you are listening um, just as this uh, podcast gone out, certainly um, before the end of 2023, then if you go onto the uh, University of South Carolina Press website, for which there will be a link in the um, in the podcast uh, text, you can find um, a discount uh, for this book and a discount on shipping as well. But even if you can't, do um, have a look for it um, either on Bookfinder or elsewhere because it really is worth your time. It's a fantastic collection. And it should be on anybody's shelf that is interested in uh, Murdoch's fiction. It really has been um, an important book, not just for myself and Dan, but I'm sure for many people who are listening who have been involved in Murdoch studies across the years. 
um, they would um, they would echo those thoughts as well. So, Julian, thank you so much for putting it together and for being with us today to to reflect on it. It may not it may feel like twenty years, um, but um, in a sense, it's still absolutely relevant to uh, um, to Murdoch scholarship. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure um, having you both on the podcast. And Dan, good luck with the um, obviously the monograph coming out in a few months and uh, and your new projects that you've got coming up as well. So my thanks to um, Gillian Dooley and to Daniel Reed for being with us today. And my thanks to you all for listening.